So, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 to 37, uh, this particular message in our series of everyday power is called humility um, for obvious reasons. Jesus is really addressing something that's hideous and ugly here. He's addressing pride, and he is addressing it in his closest followers just after he was explaining to them how in a few days' time he's going to be betrayed, he's going to be delivered up into the hands of sinful men, he's going to be murdered, and he's going to rise from the grave on the third day. And even in the shadow of that looming reality, the shadow of the cross, these disciples are arguing over something. And if you read it, it's pretty disgusting, actually. Um, And it's disgusting when we look in the mirror of God's Word and we see ourselves reflected in it. They're arguing about who's the greatest. Um, And these are followers of Jesus. They're the ones that are supposed to get it. They've been with Him for three years. They've seen His miracles. They've heard His teachings. They've seen the, the impact that He's had on the crowds. They've seen that He can cause the winds and the, the storms to cease. He can cast out demons with a word. He can heal. He can resurrect. Um, and he's going to die for them. This is one of the very sins he's going to die for in a few days' time is this pride. When I was a kid, my dad worked really hard to buy our boat a really simple, modest, uh, to buy our family a modest little boat. There was a lake about two and a half hours from where I grew up, Lake Norfolk. And we would go up there every summer for just a few days. And we had that little boat and we would you know, to try and save money, we would turn the engine off and we'd float around and, and, and swim and dive. And I had an older brother and an older sister and we would play a game. Uh, this lake was, it was deep, really deep in some parts. And we would try to swim down and see who could touch bottom. That was just kind of a competitive game we played, you know, and we would always lie. Oh, I, I touched bottom. I, I hit it. And we would say, okay, we'll produce the evidence. Where's the proof? If you went down all the way and it's, if you've ever been kind of in a, a lake that's clear on the top and really muddy at the bottom, it's creepy. The, the, the further down you go, it's cold. You hear these eerie sounds that sound like crystals bumping. You, you ever been there? It's, it's, it's unclear. It's, it's, I don't know. It's just spooky. So some of us would chicken out and go back up and say, I touched bottom. So the, the, we had rules to the game. And, and the only way you could claim to be the victor is if you produced evidence that you were actually down there, which means what? You had to grab hold of something on the bottom and rip it up. A clump of muddy, wet grass or a rock. I, you know, I nearly drowned trying to get a big rock and swim back up to the top and I'd have to drop it. Say, I promise I had it. Um, you say, what in the world has got, that got to do with anything? Well, it's got this to do. Um, I know some Christians and I've been one, you know, for the last 15, 16 years of my... Well, no, that's not true. I've been one for 20 years. Man, I'm getting old. Um, and man, we've studied theology. We've read the Bible. We've been in churches. We've been in positions of serving and we've taken... I've been to seminary for four and a half years. We've taken theology courses. We've claimed to be down there, you know? We've been to the bottom, man. We've plumbed the depths of who God is. We've taken systematic theology courses and biblical theology courses. And I've learned Hebrew and I've learned Greek. And, and you know, I've studied the greats. But when you look at our lives at times, so often it's the case that we don't really have any clumps of wet grass in our hand or any rocks. We don't have any proof that we've been down there because we're proud, And we're just like these disciples, and we bicker, and we argue. We contradict the gospel sometimes with our lives. We use other people as vehicles to carry us to greatness, or we see them as stepping stones that we can climb our little ladder of ambition, like a Tower of Babel. Um, And this passage confronts that. Now, before we really get into our outline, I just want to say a few preliminary things, because they're worth mentioning. Number one, This is so filled with grace. Just seeing the way that Jesus interacts with his disciples. Man, he's so gracious. He knew these men. He knew 
what was in their heart. He knew their struggles with pride. He knew their ignorance of his true mission. He knew their refusal to even contemplate what he just told them. He knew all those things. He knew their weaknesses. He knew their sin. And yet he chose them. He chose these 12 knuckleheads to be his disciples. And the only one that was lost was the son of perdition, Judas. And it wasn't because Jesus walked away from him. It was because he walked away from Jesus. Jesus chose these men and he never abandoned them. Not even in the midst of their hideous and ugly sins like pride. Not even them arguing over their own greatness in the shadow of the cross. He didn't abandon them. That's pretty amazing. And he, listen, he chose us too in Christ before the foundations of the world, the Bible says. And he sees our worst. He sees the part of us we won't talk about at parties, right? He sees that and he's not going anywhere. Why? Because he's utterly committed to you and to me because of the great cost of his son to reconcile us to God. Nothing's ever going to change that. Here's another preliminary thought. Jesus knew what was in the hearts of his disciples. And this is a great example to me as a shepherd, as a pastor, and as a Christian. He knew what was in there. He saw it. That's why he asked them this question. He said, what were you discussing? See how gentle Jesus is? He didn't say, what were you fighting about? Like I do to my kids. He said, what were you discussing on the road? Silence. It's like a bunch of kids, right? They didn't say anything. Why? They were ashamed. They were embarrassed because they were arguing about pride and greatness, this disgusting sin we're going to talk about. Now, let me ask you a question. Wouldn't it have been, was that awkward? That was kind of an awkward confrontation. That embarrassed them. It humiliated them. That was a hard talk. It wasn't easy for anybody. But Jesus had it with his disciples. He had the talk, not that he had it with them. He was fed up. He wasn't. That's why I had this discussion with them. Isn't that an example to us? He was so committed to them, he wouldn't let this go. He wasn't going to let this go. He couldn't let it go. See, he's training them. He wants them to grow in their conformity to his image. He wants them to grow strong in the grace of God. He wants them to see their flaws and their weaknesses, not so they can be humiliated, but so they'll know where to apply grace. It's kind of like seeing the wound. If you don't see this wound and stare at it, you're not going to know how to apply the balm of Gilead, right? I told you the story about my wife. We grew... When I was at seminary, we had a little apartment complex we stayed in. A little girl ran upstairs. She was huffing and puffing. She was out of breath. She knocked on the door and she said, my, my mommy has hurt herself really bad and she needs an adult. And I looked at Sarah and I said, you go. <laughs> so she runs downstairs and she comes back up, ashen-faced and white, pale, about to faint. She said, I got to take her to the ER. And I said, what happened? And she said, she had her hand wrapped up in a bloody rag. And she said, I can't look. I can't look. And Sarah said, what happened? And she said, we were moving this, and this big, heavy door slammed on my finger. I think it's pretty bad. I can't look. And she said, well, we got to look. She said, let's look together. And she looked, and it had cut her finger off. And she had to drive her to the ER. But listen, if she wouldn't have looked at that wound, she would have not known how severe and grave her emergency was, right? So Jesus loves these disciples and us. Read yourself in this story. He loves us so much, he's saying, hey, you got to look at the wound. If you don't, you're not going to know how desperately you need my death that I've been telling you about the last three days, right? So Jesus knew what was in their heart, and he loved them. He addressed it. Now, here's the third thing. This is just preliminary, okay? I'm cheating. I'm getting in more points here. Third preliminary thought is this. Jesus did not rebuke them for seeking greatness. That's really interesting to me. Is it to you? I mean, I would have I slapped them around. Like, what are you idiots? What are you talking about greatness? Greatness is not important. It's overrated. Who cares? He didn't do that. He does not do that. He doesn't rebuke them at all. You know what Jesus does? 
he redefines greatness. See, we're made for greatness. I know this, this sounds like something you might see on TV, right? Uh, on people that want you to give money for their private jets. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying we're made in the image of God and we are hardwired for greatness, to excel, to succeed. That's a good thing. That's not, that's not something to be rebuked. What needs to be rebuked is this false, secular, worldly, sinful ideas that we have and lays a template over greatness. I'll be great if, and then we look to the world to tell us what greatness is. If you've achieved this, if you have this many, huh, whatever it is, Jesus redefines their greatness. He doesn't rebuke them for that. So that's what's interesting to me. Now, let's move, let's move forward here. What does this passage have to do with this series, Everyday Power? You know, we've chosen these passages in Mark chapter 9 that I think there's this thread woven all throughout them. Why are we so weak and powerless as Christians? We started with the disciples couldn't cast out a demon. Remember, a father with a demon-possessed son came to them and they couldn't do anything. They did their hocus-pocus, demon didn't go anywhere. Jesus came back, cast the demon out, they were alone in a house, they look at Jesus and they say, how come we couldn't do that? Remember what he said? He said, you didn't pray. You were weak, you were ineffective, because you were arrogant, you were trusting in your own sufficiency, you were depending on yourselves. And that will weaken you as a Christian, it will weaken you as a person, it will definitely weaken you as, as a Christian um, when you're not relying on God's power, and we're still seeing that theme here. If you want, I will show you a weak Christian, and yes, Christians still sin and struggle with this. I'll show you a weak Christian when I show you a Christian whose idea of greatness is based on the world. When they're fighting, they're clamoring, they're using other people, they're contradicting the gospel, they're diminishing the glory of the cross, they're going to be a weak person. They're going to be paranoid, they're going to be anxious, they're going to be afraid. They're going to be looking over their shoulder and nervous all the time because that's what happens when you buy into the, the world's idea of greatness. So that's why I'm, I'm tying this into our series because these disciples are still weak. They need power. And Jesus is helping them to see this is why you're weak and this is the way to power. This is what greatness really is. See, humility uh, in the eyes of the world, it doesn't really attract a lot of attention. You know that, right? Humble people, they're not going to be on the 9 o'clock news at night. They're not going to be uh, the ones that are featured on the media outlets and the Facebook and Instagram and all of that. It's people that are really, really proud. But I have good news for you. You know, the world rewards pride and, and doesn't recognize humility. But the Bible says things like this. It says, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the whole earth seeking to show himself powerful. Did you know the Bible says things like that? Now, God is a spirit. He doesn't have eyes. But that's the Bible's way of saying God is aware of everything. Nothing escapes its notice. And at the same time, it says, and there's one thing in particular that, that captures the gaze of God. It gets his attention. It's almost as if God is on the edge of his throne looking down. Wow. I know that sounds almost heretical. It's not that it surprises God. It's that something is, is attractive to God. I could say it that way. Do you know what it is? It's humility. It's humility doesn't attract the world, they write it off as weakness. In fact, I've been told, I've read, that humility didn't even become a virtue until Christianity started. It was seen as a weakness by the Greeks and the Romans. All the weak people that couldn't do anything for them, they would throw out in a field and let them die. The old people, the infants that were sick or had physical you know, abnormalities, they would cast them out to die. And then Christianity began and humility suddenly became a virtue. And that's the only adjective Jesus ever used to describe himself. I am meek and lowly. 
It's pretty amazing for God to say that about himself, isn't it? But humility attracts the attention of God, and I'll prove it to you. Check this verse out. Isaiah 66, 2, we read these words. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Isn't that amazing? You know, the Bible also says this in the New Testament, and it says it in two different places. James chapter 4, verse 6, and 1 Peter 5, verse 5. They both are almost identical, and they say this. God gives grace to the humble. And the verb tense there is it's ongoing. God continually, He gives power to people who demonstrate humility, who walk in humility. And then it also says this, but God opposes who? The proud. God contends with proud people because proud people contend with Him. That's what pride is, if you want a definition. It's contending with the supremacy of God. That's what pride is in its essence. But what a powerful verse, man. God gives grace to the humble. He empowers them, but He resists He opposes proud people. And here's what's really interesting to me. In both of those passages, we have this clarifying statement about the devil. In those same passages, that context, it says, therefore, resist the devil. Submit to God. Draw near to God. Isn't that interesting? You don't hear that in a lot of talks about satanic opposition, spiritual warfare. See, you can't resist Satan if you're just like him. He's the proudest creature in the universe. It's always interesting the Bible couples those things together. Resisting Satan and clothing yourself in humility. What a novel thought. And and that really relates to what we're talking about here because it all started with this conversation that Jesus had with his disciples. So let's get to the sermon outline, okay? Okay, I know that looks intimidating, but don't be scared, okay? I promise it's it's not going to be a long, long sermon. Can you guys see that? Proud Christians. The disciples are proud Christians. And, And... Things happen when we're proud as believers, as followers of Jesus, as his disciples. Three things. And then you see their opposite on the other side. Um, So proud Christians generate strife. They use others, and they contradict the gospel. And the flip side of that is humble Christians. You know, proud Christians is almost an oxymoron. It's a contradiction, isn't it? Proud follower of Jesus. What do you have to be proud about? But on the flip side of that, humble Christians cultivate peace. They serve others, and they display the gospel. So that's the outline this morning. Let's look at number one, proud Christians generate strife. Check this out, verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? Verse 34, but they kept silent. For on the way, they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Who was the greatest? If arguing and fighting and quarreling and bickering is smoke, then you can rest assured there's a fire. Where there's smoke, there's fire, right? And mark it down, take it to the bank, and deposit it. When people are fighting, pride is always the fire underneath that at some point. That's what produces conflict, heated discussion, arguments, and contention. That's what James says in his epistle, chapter 4. What? causes fighting and quarrels among you. Is it not your passions at war with one another? Right? It's pride. Pride causes conflict. It causes division. We argue about who uh, is the greatest all the time, right? Who's the greatest singer? Who's the greatest athlete? Is it Bo Jackson? You know, I'm 43, so for me that was the... Is it Bo Jackson or Michael Jordan, you know? Is it Barry Sanders? Who is it? Who's the great? John McIntosh, Tiger Woods... 
Who's the greatest athlete? Who's the greatest actor or actress? Who's the prettiest? Who's the most famous? Who's the strongest? Who's the best MMA fighter? Whatever it is, we argue about those things all the time. The best of the best. And sometimes it gets personal because we put ourselves in the mix, right? We put ourselves in the mix. It's not just kids. It's us. C.S. Lewis said this once. Um, because it's interesting, they're not arguing about who's great. That would be one level of sin. That's a bottom level sin, right? You could say, I guess, if there is such a thing. They're arguing about who's the greatest. <laughs> Do you see the, the superlative? It's not, hey, I'm, I'm close to Jesus. Hey, we just went on. This is probably all surrounding the Mount of Transfiguration, that event that just happened earlier. Uh, I think the day before, you remember Jesus went up on the mountain, manifested his glory. He pulled back the the flesh of his arms, pretty much, so to speak, and showed them, I'm God. And he only took three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And he told them on the way down, don't talk about this. Man, <laughs> wouldn't you be tempted though? Come on. You were up there. You saw his glory. You saw his majesty. You were with him on the mountain. And then the next day they're on the road and they're arguing about who's the greatest. Can't you hear it? I'm the greatest. I'm the, no, you're not. Shut up, Andrew. Shut up, Matthew, you know. And, and Peter, James, and John are over there. <laughs> They're like, hey, guys, what, what happened on the mountain? Oh, we can't talk about it. He told us not to. You wouldn't believe what we saw. One of these days, maybe, we'll tell you about it. But we're not allowed. It was just really special. I don't know why he didn't invite you guys. You know, he, it was Peter, James, and John. And I was really closest to him. I had a front row seat to the whole thing. Isn't that interesting? They're just like us. This is what C.S. Lewis said. Great quote from him. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. And that's what they're after here. And listen, they get their cues from the world. The world is just like that. It's arguing over greatness. It's fighting. Jesus has been talking to them about a kingdom for the last three years. And you know, to their credit, Jesus has been saying who's the greatest in the kingdom and who's the least in the kingdom. Remember? He used terms of like hierarchy. And so the disciples want to know who's at the top, who's at the bottom. Who's in, who's out. They're arguing over that. They have their own ideas about that. Can you see yourself in their struggle? Sinclair Ferguson talks about the context for this argument. It being again in the shadow of the, of the cross. Jesus just talked about his death, which should have humbled all of, all of them. He talked about betrayal. They should have asked, is one of us going to betray him? But instead they're arguing. And Sinclair says this, if we did not know our own hearts, we would find it difficult to believe that this really happened. <laughs> but any disciple who knows himself hears the echoes in his own life of such unfaithfulness. This happens all the time. This reminds me of seminary. I'm serious. There was so much testosterone in those classrooms when I went to seminary. There's like hundreds of guys on a campus. We're all competing. We're all competing. We want internships at the church. We want the best grade in the class. We want the best mark in the preaching lab. We're trying to outdo one another with illustrations and with, you know, our voice and the inflection of our voice and what we wear in a preaching lab. It's disgusting. It is. In a seminary, that was taking place. Are you a stranger to this? Does this happen in your house? If you have kids, I know it does. Maybe at work, maybe in your neighborhood, in your own heart, this happens. This passage is very telling. And this passage is going to help us if we let it, brothers and sisters. Because this is going to tell us that in the world, 
The way that people conceive of greatness is that it's something that you fight for. In other words, you want to be great? You've got to fight for it. It's something to achieve. It's something to struggle for. It's something to win. It's something that you achieve. And therefore, the achievement of greatness is always going to be accompanied by strife. Because listen, the minute you think you have greatness, guess what? You're going to be looking over your shoulder that somebody else is going to take it from you. Isn't that the truth? Hey, I went to a, it's a, please don't take this as me putting a feather in my hat. I promise you it's not. I broke a record at my high school in, in a track meet. It was a little triple A school, but I broke the record for running the mile. I love to run long distance, and, and I set the school record. I was so proud, and I didn't sleep for a year. You know why? Because I knew somebody's going to break that record, and I didn't want them to. I wanted my name up there with my time beside it, Tommy Clayton, the god of Greene County Tech. That's what I thought in my mind. And you know what? It's funny, man. In two years, some little kid came along and shattered that record. And I couldn't even look him in the face. I'm like, ah, no, it's just a mile. It doesn't mean anything, you know? But when you achieve greatness, you're paranoid. You're always looking over your shoulder. You're sleeping with one eye open. Have you ever watched documentaries about the mafia? Craig always makes fun of me. I don't know why I'm so intrigued by the mafia, but I am. And I'll watch all these documentaries. Man, would you, <laughs> I would not want to be in a mafia family. Would, I mean, seriously, the minute that you're named the Don or you're a made man, look out because somebody's going to knock you off. It's like, it's like a game of king of the hill in real life. Once you get to the top, you've got your position. It's yours. Somebody else wants it. Sleep with one eye open. When you turn the keys in your ignition, you better be ready to meet God at any given moment, you know, because somebody could put a hit out on you. Stay close to your bodyguards. Why? Because that's the world's idea of greatness. You fight for it. You struggle for it. You earn it. You achieve it. You win it. And then you've got to protect it. And Jesus says, that's not my idea of greatness. That's the world's. That's Satan's. That's satanic. That's a satanic view of greatness. And listen, that doesn't just produce strife on the inside. It produces strife on the, strife on the outside, rather, arguing with other people. It produces strife, anxiety, fear, you know how many people probably pay a ton of money to go to a psychologist because of this, you know? It's this idea of greatness, this internal struggle that they had to get to the top and stay there. It drives people mad. It drives people crazy. Some people take their own life because of it. It's true. So these disciples, they're arguing, Lord, which one of us is going to be on the top? Who's in and who's out? And they're just like us. Tears for Fears used to be one of my favorite rock groups growing up. I'm sorry, they just were. And they had a song, and you know it, I'm sure. Everybody, what? Wants to rule the world. Why do you think that song resonated with so many people? Because <laughs> it's true. I mean, well, don't you want to rule the world? Come on. Don't you? We're like, yeah, God rules the world. Yeah, but you'd be on his right hand if he would let you, wouldn't you? Of course you would. That's greatness. That's the idea of greatness. Wrangling, cutthroat, fighting, squabbling. That sounds awfully American to me. See, we think, yeah, the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, and it's true, culturally, man, they vied for seats and positions and titles. That's why Jesus is constantly using stories like, look, when you go to a wedding or a banquet, don't sit at the head of the table. You can make a fool out of yourself. You could get asked to sit in a lower place. Sit in the lowest place first, which was, that would have been mouth jaw-dropping to people. What? Ain't nobody going to sit in the lowest place. Yeah, Jesus is, he's turning their idea of greatness upside down. The Jews, they struggled with that. That was a cultural issue they had. 
They wanted title and, and pomp and ceremony and position. So when Jesus said this to them, it blew them away. But that's, an, that's not just Jewish and not just Middle Eastern and not just 2,000 years ago struggle. It's today. That's American. That's in my heart and your heart. That's because of the fall. That's what it did to us. Here's a quote I read from an article on corporate ladder climbing. Let's talk about climbing the corporate ladder. For most of us, it stinks. Why is that? Oh, I don't know. Maybe it's got something to do with all the politicking, backstabbing, rear-end kissing. I edited this. I thought you would appreciate that. Uh, rear-end covering, lying, sugarcoating, whining, ego-worshipping, and self-promoting that goes on. Let's face it. We don't always get along so well, do we? I mean, the average workplace is a veritable petri dish of conflict and dysfunctional behavior. It's not as if somebody hands you a briefcase, a fat paycheck, and a handful of first-class upgrades and says, welcome to the club, we've been waiting for you. You've got to fight your way up every rung of that ladder for every promotion, every raise, every interview process, even just for the recognition. You know what that sounds like to me? Uh, grounds for a heart attack, anxiety, stress. Do we wonder why people in America and in the church are so stressed out all the time? It's because of this lesson that Jesus is trying to teach us. It's it. I believe that with all my heart. We have bought into the, the world's idea, which is we can't blame the world. We're attracted to it in our hearts. We bought into that idea. And listen, that will, that will wreck you and that will weaken you. You'll live life ineffective and, and without any power as a Christian. Jesus has a better way. His way is always better. His way is always better. I've been reading uh, St. Augustine's Confessions. It's an old book. It's so good. He says this. That was groundbreaking, by the way. Nobody had ever written anything like that. Uh, St. Augustine just vomits up his emotions. He's just brutally honest. I love the book. He says, It is gratifying to be held in esteem by other men and to have the power of giving them orders and gaining the mastery over them. He's just brutally honest, isn't it? That feels good to be on top. It feels good to, to, to be served and to give people orders. And to be in charge and to wear a crown. Feels good to be king for a day, right? Like Tom Petty said. It's what everybody wants. So here's the other, the other half of that. Humble Christians cultivate peace. If proud Christians generate strife, and they do, that's the smoke, the fire is pride, then what would that say about humble Christians? Man, they're peacemakers. They are. Everywhere they go, there's a trail of peace and reconciliation that takes place because they're not, they don't view every meeting as a contest of the will. Like, who's better? Who's best? They don't walk into a room and, and, and suddenly screen it for who can help me. Now, guys, be honest. We do this. You walk into a room. Who do you walk up to first? Shake their hand and engage in a conversation. Usually, if we ass act, assess and evaluate our own heart, we're after something. Like, that person can open doors for me. He can connect me. Because it's not what you know, it's who you know, Right? We do that. We screen all the people that are going to be a burden and a black hole and suck up our time and energy. They're, they're marginalized because they're not important to us. They can't help us. They can't serve us. They can't be our vehicle to drive us the greatness. So therefore, they're an obstacle and they need to get out of the way and let me get to the powerful people, right? That's, that's the world we live in. And so often that mentality is in the church. It is. I've seen it. I've been a part of it. I have. C.S. Lewis said this, so what does a humble Christian look like? He said this, do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, I don't know why he said greasy, he doesn't mean it like we would. 
<laughs> I'm sorry. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who is always telling you that, of course, he is nobody. Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. Did you hear that last part? See, humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. Really, it's thinking of yourself not at all. And we meet humble people all the time. And let me tell you, when you've met one, they make you feel like you're the center of the universe at the moment they're engaging you. They're not distracted, they're engaged. You, in that moment, are what's most important to them. They make you feel like you're their best friend. Do you know people like that? Do you appreciate that? I know people like that. I know people in this church like that, that are just totally engaged. They're absorbed, and it's the people that can't take them places. That's why Jesus picked a child. We'll get to that in a minute. So here's the, uh, here's the next point. Proud Christians use others. Proud Not only do they generate strife, but they use other people to serve them. They use other people to serve them. Now, Jesus is going to give these disciples an unforgettable object lesson, okay? He's not just telling them your, your view of greatness is really disgusting and messed up and sinful. He's going to correct it. He's going to redefine it. He says, greatness? You want greatness? Look at what he says here. So in verse 35, he sat down. And that means it's teaching time here, boys. Time for a lesson. Time for a sermon. He sat down and he called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, and man, they're on the edge of the seat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, you want to be great, do you? If anyone would be first, he must be last of all. What a downer, man, to hear that. What a bummer. I'm serious. This would have been a slap in their face. He must be least or last of all and a servant of all. A servant of all. And he took a child. Because Jesus knows, man. That's why I do PowerPoint. I don't particularly like doing PowerPoint, honestly. It adds three hours to my sermon prep. You know why I do it? Because we are visual learners, most of us. And if this helps you, I love you that much. I'll do this for you, okay? We're visual learners. Jesus knew that. So you know what he did? He went and got a child. And it's interesting to me, it says they were in the house. Look at verse 33. They came to Capernaum, and he was in the house. The, the definite article is there. This is a house that they typically met in. And I'm going to guess, this is Tommyology here. I'm going to guess this was Peter's house. Peter was married. Peter probably had kids. Peter's kids were probably like Peter, rascals. This would have been like Jesus getting Marshall, my son, okay? How many people know Marshall? All right. <laughs> he goes, you want to be great, huh? Marshall, come here. <laughs> and he probably had a snotty nose. I mean, he may have bit Jesus. I don't know. He may have had a dirty diaper. It's interesting, and just to be a Greek nerd for a minute, the, the word used in Greek, he picked up and held the child, it means to take your elbow and bend it like this. So this kid was little. Jesus went and got a toddler. He didn't go get Steve Jobs. Somebody like Steve, he said, now guys, you want greatness? Here's what you want. Somebody that's demanding, intolerant, angry. <laughs> you know, he didn't do that. That's what the world will do. Don't we still do that? Steve Jobs, the greatest man the world has ever known. I get it. He, he understood technology. Uh, he built some really powerful things that we use. I'm using one of them right here. But Steve Jobs was an angry man, and everywhere he went, there was strife that followed him. Why? Because he bought into that idea of greatness. 
No, Jesus, when he's teaching us an unforgettable lesson on greatness, he goes and gets a toddler. I mean, just let that settle for a minute. This is the God of the universe, spoke the stars into existence, hung galaxies, laid the foundations of the earth, and he's teaching us about what it means to be a great human being and to succeed. And he goes and gets a toddler and he says, whoever receives, look what he says, took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Man, that's, that's deep, guys. That's deep. That's the grass at the bottom of Lake Norfolk. You really want to know if you're a great person in the eyes of God, how do you treat people that are marginalized? How do you treat minorities? How do you treat people that are considered peripheral, unimportant? Children in that day, they weren't seen as they are in America today. Oh, that's so cute. No, because of the high mortality rate, until a child was six, seven, eight years old, they weren't even really considered a, a, a human being. Until they proved they were strong enough, healthy enough to be able to turn into a, a productive, producing member of society, they were like, get out of the way, you annoy me, you bother me. And Jesus says, however you receive one of these people that can't do anything for you, why do they get children? Why do they go and get a child? Well, I have kids, many of you have kids, and I, I seem to know a few things about them, Okay. Number one, they're usually ungrateful. Kids are ungrateful for, for what you do. I'm not bashing kids. I, I love kids, obviously. I have six, okay? Kids are ungrateful for most of the things you do for them and to them. They are. They don't appreciate it. Kids can't do much for you, right? They take. They take. Daddy, 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 you know, wipe my nose, wipe my rear end, give me your phone. They take. They want you to serve them. That's why you're on this planet to serve them, Right? They don't give. They don't produce. They don't contribute. They take. They suck you dry of all your energy. And Jesus says, greatness is how you receive one of those people who can't do a thing for you. They can't take you places. They can't open doors for you. They can't connect you to the president and the senator so-and-so. No, they're going to take. They're going to drain you. They are. They're going to be like a black hole that like sucks all your power and energy and focus away. He gets one of those little human beings and says, this is true greatness. William Barclay said this, now a child has no influence at all. A child cannot advance a man's career nor enhance a man's prestige. A child cannot give us things. It's the other way around. A child needs things. A child must have things done for him. And so Jesus is saying, if a man welcomes the poor, ordinary people, the people who have no influence and no wealth and no power, the people who need things done for them, then he's welcoming me. And more than that, he's welcoming God. Ah, oh, that's deep. That's pretty amazing to think about. That's what Jesus is saying here. Children were nobodies. And Jesus gets a nobody and says, until you receive the people who can do nothing for you. In fact, all they can do is take. You can't really call yourself a Christian. You certainly can't say that you're a great person. We have a motto in our leadership at this church, and it's this. And I try to drill it in to all of our leaders. If serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. You're not going to be a leader at this church. I mean, you may do things, but as far as having an official title of a leader, if you're not willing to serve, 
you're not going to be a leader here because that's, I'm not interested in what the world thinks about leadership. You know, if you have this in front of your name or after your name, or if you're not willing to serve, Jesus says, forget about it. You know, it's not going to work. Tim Keller says this. He says, if you have brought Jesus into the center of your life and you understand him and you know what he's done and you know what he's all about, then your attitude toward people will be such that you will not look down on anyone. You will not despise or look down on little ones. People who are of little economic power, people who are poor, people who are marginal, people who don't have a lot of credibility or cultural power, you're not going to look down on them. In fact, you're going to be open to them. You're going to be interested in them. You're going to be drawn to them. You're going to want to serve them. That's your preference. Isn't it interesting that every time Jesus wants a child, he doesn't have to look very far? I think little children followed him around like the people in that movie, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf, you know? They're following Jesus all over the place because he loves them. They feel welcome in his presence. He was warm. He was perceptive. He was available. He was accessible to them. Man, that's what a true Christian is. doesn't run from needy people because they're going to suck you dry and take all of your attention and time. You're drawn to them. That's how, if you're conformed to the image of Jesus, he was certainly drawn to those people before he was the religious people. Religious people disgusted Jesus. They murdered Jesus. It's easy to forget that. The people that were marginalized, that were on the bottom of the ladder, Jesus was drawn to them, and he still is. And if we're created in God's image, that image has fallen, it's marred, but it's restored in Jesus, and we're being conformed to the image of Jesus, we should be drawn to those people too. And Jesus says, the great Christian is the one who receives them in my name. You're actually receiving God when you go to those people. I'm not saying they are God. (laughs) I'm saying that you're receiving God. So that's what's interesting about this. How do you receive a child? You're without distraction, your undivided attention. Plato said this, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Think about that. Plato, one of the most influential thinkers and philosophers of Western civilization, And he says, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? Can I ask Plato a question here? Was Jesus happy? I know he was the man of sorrows. I get all that because he was going to the cross. But Jesus was the happiest, most perfect, complete human being who ever lived. And Jesus says later in this book, we're going to get to it. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the key verse in the whole book. For the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve And to give his life as a ransom for many. How humbling is that? It's like, Plato, I beg to differ, my friend. (laughs) I beg to differ. No, in fact, I would say this. The only way you can truly be happy is when you're living up to the potential that God created you and you're serving other people. Then you're most like God. You're never more like God than when you're humble and when you're open to people who have need. And you're never more like Satan than when you're proud. That's what the Bible teaches. That's what Christianity teaches teaches. So all I'm saying is this, Jesus didn't set this child up as, as, as somebody to imitate like so many people think he is. That's another passage. No, Jesus, um, the point of comparison is the insignificance of the child. He's insignificant. Therefore, disciples are not necessarily to be like children, but to be like Jesus who embraces them. That's the lesson here. Um, so let's go to the last point and we'll be done. Proud Christians contradict the gospel. First of all, proud Christians generate strife. So humble Christians uh, cultivate peace, right? Secondly, proud Christians, what was it? What was the second point? 
Yeah, yeah, thank you. And it's been one of those weeks, guys. I'm sorry. Proud Christians use other people's. They see him as, as vehicles to carry you to greatness or stumbling blocks, hurdles, obstacles to be removed. Uh, whereas humble Christians, they don't use other people. They serve other people. And then the final point, proud Christians contradict the gospel. And what do Christians do? They demonstrate it. They display it. They display the gospel. They display the power of the gospel. Because listen, so often the people that are great in the world, the people do, that, who have wealth or success or clout, whatever it is, power, authority, so often what do they think? I won that. I earned that. I deserve that. I achieved that. That belongs to me. I belong up here. And when you think that way, not only are you going to be proud, you're going to be arrogant, and you're going to start to contradict the gospel because the Bible says this, actually. Paul says, what do you have that you have not received from God, right? Every good gift, James says, every good gift comes from God, right? The Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or chance of turning, the Bible says. Every good gift you have, your health, the fact that you breathe fresh oxygen today, the fact that your heart beats the way it's supposed to, that you have fully functioning lungs, that's a gift of God. The fact that you can put words together and form a sentence, you didn't achieve that either, Hoss. <laughs> That's from God. He gave that to you. Whatever position you're in, whatever your salary is, I know, we work, we go to college, we get educated, but the fact that you can go to college and get educated, all of those are gifts from God. And when you forget that, you begin to contradict the gospel, you think you earned that, and then grace goes out the window, and you're no longer even in the realm of Christianity. Because Christianity is about divine achievement, not human accomplishment. Not human effort, sorry. Let me say it that way. Either way, same thing. It's about divine accomplishment, not human effort. You didn't earn this. You don't deserve this. You don't belong in God's presence. You're there because of Jesus. So it contradicts the gospel. The Christian gospel is the only... Uh, I don't want to even call it religion, but it has the resources to crush pride. That's why I love what John Stott said. Check this out. He said, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. All of us have inflated views of ourselves, especially in self-righteousness. Until we have visited a place called Calvary, it is here at the foot of the cross that we shrink to our true size. Don't you love that? You really want to, and this, that's what humility is. It's honestly assessing yourself in the presence of God. Where's the best place to do that? I just want to know, who am I and how great, how awesome am I? Okay, let's talk, let's have that conversation. We'll have it under the cross. And you will shrink to your true size there to say, how awesome are you? You're so awesome, man. God had to die for you. You're that awesome. <laughs> you were so messed up. Your heart was so filled with sin and corruption and depravity that, that God had to send his son to crawl inside a human body and subject himself to time, to sinners, to a fallen planet and with, with fallen bodies and die for your sins. See, the Christian gospel can humble you, but it doesn't stop there. The Christian gospel can also generate confidence in you, the right kind, not pride. There's a difference. See, the gospel says, the cross says, you're so sinful, Jesus had to die for you. But it also says, he loves you so much. He loves you so much, he was, he was glad to do it. It delighted his heart. You are his treasure. The Bible says, God sings over us. How amazing is that? It's, it says, Jesus saw the travail of his soul and he was satisfied. It says, for the joy set before him, he went to the cross. He did it gladly. 
See, only the cross can do that. It cuts your pride to pieces. It smashes your neediness that's sinful, your insecurity that's radical. It crushes all of that, and it puts us in our rightful place. The cross never flatters us. It's impossible to be arrogant when you're standing underneath a symbol and object of, of what our sin cost God, right? Isaac Watts had a hymn that says, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss, and poor contempt on all my pride. It's amazing. The cross uh, is the only thing that has the ability to smash our pride and cause us to stop contradicting the gospel and instead displaying the glories of the cross. What the cross does, it causes you to walk into a room and say, you know what? If Jesus evaluated the people that he came to die for, the same way that I'm tempted to evaluate these people, he could have saved himself a trip to the earth. Because if Jesus looked down and said, I wonder who won't drain me. I wonder who won't be the black hole that sucks all of my power because they're so needy and sinful. I wonder who will actually serve me and help me. If Jesus evaluated people in a room that way, he would have never came to earth. And so the gospel causes us to stop thinking that way. And instead, you walk into a room or you walk in the church and you say, who can I serve today? Where are there needs that I can help meet? Does children's ministry have, I mean, that, that's, to me, man, that's one of the, the greatest applications of this. In the church, in our gathering, there's always holes to fill in that schedule. There's always a need back there to serve these little ones, to teach them about the cross, to teach them about Jesus, to, to show love to them. So are we asking ourselves that question? Not just in the church, that's not the only application. In your home. Are you serving your spouse? And listen, I'm talking to husbands. <laughs> Are you serving your spouse or do you think that's just for wives? No, the Bible says, submit to one another in the fear of the Lord. Serve your family. Serve your children. Serve your employees. We have it backwards. We have it so wrong side up. When we are fully functioning as Christians who are blood-bought, redeemed by the Lamb, Man, our life is, is one continual act of service. And, and Jesus says, those are the great ones. Those are the ones who attract me. Those are the ones that my eyes go to and fro and find. So that's what I really wanted to say to you um, this morning. Pride is our greatest enemy. Humility is our greatest friend. And Jesus gave us this unforgettable object lesson. And I pray that it encourages you. So let's, let's pray.